0: bon james Bond. japanese proverbs say bird never make nest in bear tree just a slight stiffness coming on your cellos are studied values. i'm just up here at oxford brushing up on a little danish
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number three. This is the podcast where we talk about James Bond 007, quite a simple premise, and we discuss our sometimes serious, sometimes lighthearted thoughts on the films. So uh, thanks for joining us in the Cubbyhole. You're very welcome inside. We know there are a lot of Bond podcasts out there and uh, active Bond fandom, so we really do appreciate each and every one of you tuning in wherever and whenever that may be Uh, so if you'd like to get more involved in the show uh, lend us your support uh, that'd be great Uh, we're across the social media so you can uh, give us a like on facebook or a follow on instagram and twitter or if you'd like to get even more involved then feel free to drop us an email roger moore's cubbyhole at gmail.com if there are any burning topics or any questions that you have for us that we can discuss in future episodes now uh, last week we discussed from russia with love the second james bond film uh, and we said that there was so much about that film to love the complex plot the intelligent baddies the superlative acting the incredible soundtrack however i still feel it has a massive rival for that position and in this episode We'll be talking about the big one, yes, it's
0: Goldfinger,
1: a film that's become synonymous with the Bond franchise, cited as a favourite among hardcore and casual fans alike, and yes, it is the one where the laser beam goes up is Jeffers. With me to discuss that, and much more, we have the man who doesn't play much golf, but when he does, he plays a Schlesinger one, it's Adam, how are you Adam, what did you think of last week's episode, and what are you excited for this time around?
2: Thanks, Martin. Hello, everyone. And yes, I always play with a Slazinger 1. No penfold hearts for me, I'll have you know. Uh, I loved Last Week. Um, it's a great run of certainly the first three Bond films. Uh, I've enjoyed all of it. From Russia With Love's has always been a bit of a favourite of mine. I was very pleased to finally convert uh, you and, and Phil to it. Uh, just because, as we said, the story is so great, the stylishness and the efficiency and just the slickness of the direction, I think, is really brilliant. And the fact that it feels the most Cold war of all of the Bond films, it feels like the most plausible, I guess, in terms of being a proper Cold War thriller. And a complete gear shift today, because we go proper Bond, and boy, do we go proper Bond. This is the one that sets the standards. So it was very interesting and a lot of fun to go back to it this week to see just how well it stands up on the probably dozen viewing of it for me.
1: That's great. Thanks, Adam. And he'll beckon you to enter his web of sin. But please listeners, do not go in. It's Phil. What's new, Phil?
3: Yes, thanks Martin. Um I've enjoyed my week so far, I enjoyed last week's episode as well. Um I think we're in a very privileged position with the current list of Bond films, obviously, it's quite a rich vein of form that Sean Connery's in. As I really enjoyed From Russia with Love last week and really looking forward to getting into this week's episode with Goldfinger. Again, it's one of my very favourite films of all time, and obviously, we'll be discussing a bit more about the cars and gadgets as we, we go into the
2: episode. Bill, you may remember last week you had a great trivia fact about James Bond leaving the shower on in his Istanbul hotel whilst he's being uh, filmed making love to Tatiana Romanova. And I did some further research on this. And it does turn out that that hotel is still standing in Istanbul. It's now called the Hotel Connery. And in tribute to the filming that took place there, they've actually left the shower running as a kind of constant uh, spring. Uh, and it's now a pilgrimage site for Bond tourists to, to go into the bathroom where Connery left the shower running and bathe themselves in the liquid that Connery released. And it apparently has healing properties. It apparently makes your golf swing 25% better. So uh, thank you very much for bringing that to light for us last week.
3: Yeah, well, I feel very honoured by that fact. I think I might have to visit that hotel and, uh, and bathe in the elixir of the, uh,
2: the Bond shower, I think. That's, uh, the elixir that's of, one of
1: Connery's fluids. Yeah, lovely image <laughs> there. Thanks, Adam.
2: Absolutely. Apparently the water bills are very expensive, though. They barely cover the costs in tourist tickets. That's my honeymoon sorted, though. I, I really do hope you manage to affect that for your honeymoon. That would be absolutely amazing. I'll try and suggest it, but I I doubt it'll get through. You'll both enjoy Istanbul. I'm I'm told it's a really lovely, pretty, picturesque city. And no one films you behind the mirror in Hotel Bridal Suites anymore, so I think you'd both be okay on that one. Well, as far as we know, anyway.
1: (laughs) So while we have those lovely mental images, let's move on to our first segment. It is the film in brief. So over to you, Adam. What do we have for Goldfinger?
2: So, we are at Goldfinger, the third James Bond film, adapted from the seventh James Bond novel. This time, Guy Hamilton is the director. He steps in in place of Terence Young. Sean Connery, of course, returns again to the role of Bond. This was released in September 1964, so still a full 24 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film role in the 1988 classic Taffin.
0: What goes on in this town is none of your business. As long as I'm living here, it is. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! This Bond film
2: was made on, again, a slightly higher budget for $3 million. After its first run, it grosses $46 million. And after re-release, that goes up to $125 million. And in context, this is the first mega hit. This is what today would be the Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of grossing. It held at the time the Guinness World Record as the fastest grossing film in history. Uh, And it was also the first Bond film to win an Oscar. It won for Best Sound Effects and its critical status has always been very high. It's now ranked by the BFI as the 70th greatest British film in history. And so, to run us through the film itself without any further ado, you've all been looking forward to him. Here he is
0: again. It's Alan. So, you're looking down the barrel of a gun at a man who yet again isn't Sean Connery. Bang! Blood dribbles down. James Bond blows up a heroin-flavoured banana factory dressed as a seagull in a wetsuit, but under the wetsuits a pristine white tux. He celebrates by copping off with a dancing lady and electrocuting a thug in a bathtub. Shocking. Positively shocking. Cue the music! Goldfinger! Now in Miami, where Bond meets the world's fattest man. Or Goldfinger. Sounds like a French nail varnish. He seduces his assistant, Jill Masterton, to stop him cheating at cars. But after a random dig at the Beatles, someone knocks him out and kills Jill by painting her head to toe in gold while she's completely bollocks. Bond needs some serious kick to go after the fat man, so Q gives him a new Aston Martin DB5. You see this little red button in the gear stick? Whatever you do, don't touch it. It'll fire the ejector seat. Ejector seat Q, you're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. Bond goes to play Goldfinger at golf, where he's cheating again the swine, but Bond and his caddy notice that he plays with a Schlesinger one, and out cheat him to win. Goldfinger's as mad as he is fat, and his butler Oddjob, an actual Korean sumo wrestler, crushes a golf ball with his bare hands and decapitates a statue with his deadly hat of death. Bond follows him to Switzerland and ends up in a car chase around Pinewood Studios with Tilly Masterson, Jill's irritating sister. The Aston takes out half an army, including an old biddy with a tommy gun and a poor dummy who gets ejected, before Bond writes the car off and then finds himself spread-eagled with a laser beam creeping up to his gentleman's relish. You expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die! Bond talks himself out of an impromptu circumcision and wakes up being letched at by a beautiful lady. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must They take him to a Kentucky-fried stud farm where Goldfinger's gathered Robin and the Seven Hoods for Operation Grand Slam, literally the maddest crime caper of all time. Bond seduces Pussy in a barn with some nifty judo and his magic penis, turning her and her squadron of busty blonde trick pilots onto his side. So when Goldfinger tries to detonate a nuclear bomb inside Fort Knox, Felix Leiter actually does something useful and turns up with the entire American army. But Bond's trapped inside with the bomb. An odd job knocks seven balls out of him before Bond electrocutes him with his own deadly hat of death. He blew a fuse. And they stuck the bomb with 007 seconds left. Bond's on a plane to meet the president, but Goldfinger's there and depressurizes the cabin. After the fattest man in the world gets sucked out of the world's smallest window, Bond and Pussy bail to safety where he enjoys pussy galore in every sense of the word. This is no time to be rescued. The end. <laughs>
1: Thank you very much. Alan and Adam, fantastic synopsis as always. For me, Goldfinger is certainly still one of the best James Bond films and uh, I think some of those plot points explain the reason why. Uh, what did we think Phil what uh, what are your impressions of Goldfinger?
3: To be honest, I I love this film. This was the very first one I saw when I was a youngster in in the 1990s growing up. It was the film that got me introduced to Bond. And even now, even to this day, it is my absolute favourite of the entire franchise. I know that you guys have got your own sort of your own top ones. But I think the beauty of it is the fact that it's not just a great Bond film. It's a great film. You don't, you know, you don't have to be a Bond fan to love it. It's just, it's, it's from start to finish, it's just perfect. It's just, you know... The whole setup, the acting, the plot, the feel of it, you know, the tempo, the the gadgets, the action, the whole setup is just perfect. It's just there's no sort of element of it where I think that it was, you know, that it was a poor film. And that kind of that goes right back to being a kid because it was that excitement of watching it. Obviously, you know, when you are a kid, you've not really got the attention span that you would have as an adult. But for a film of that length to keep your attention for that long, you know, the fact that it's this sort of grotesque villain in in Goldfinger. Whereas, you know, in the previous films we saw, they had quite a lot of intelligence with Spectre, you know, with, um, with Rosa Klebb and with Blofeld and um, Doctor No. You know, they, they were these quite sort of kind of evil geniuses, as, as the um, the cliche goes. Whereas Goldfinger is just basically a crook and a thug who has made his way through high society and is now, you know, the world's biggest um, gold dealer. And also, it's just the entire cast, they almost seem like they're on top form. You know, nobody puts in a badge. Jeff, you know, when even if it's like Airmore Money Penny, everybody is just sort of it seems like it escalates from the last two films. It just sets up the whole franchise brilliantly, I think. And I I just love it from start to finish. It's just one of the not just one of the best bomb films, but one of the best films I've ever watched. And I, I always say I think if you had to do like sort of your own desert island films that you had to take with you, Goldfinger would be the first on the list. If you had ten films that you could only watch for the rest of the time, this would be one of them.
1: Very right, good. So, uh, where are you getting your electricity from, Phil, on this desert island to power the TV? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'd, I'd probably get a remote generator, to be honest. Okay, that's good.
1: I, I agree with what you said there, Phil. The uh, the characters excellent acting again in this film, even from the characters uh, like Odd Job, who doesn't say anything, utters no words at all throughout the entire film, but still a great uh, performance. And certainly the plot. But how about in terms of the plot, Adam? Uh, what did we think? We said that our previous Films that we've reviewed, Dr. No and From Russia With Love, were grounded in some reality or at least some realism. What did we think in terms of the Goldfinger plot? Uh, personally, I'd say it's moving towards the more ridiculous, but we're still it still feels real.
2: Yeah, we're still very much in something that resembles our reality within this film, even if um, everything about this film is not at all realistic. It's not realism. This is when we really take off into the realms of what the gold standard, big, bold, spectacular, tongue-in-cheek, funny Bond film really is. Uh, And they did change, I was going to talk a bit about this later, but in terms of the plot and in terms of the scheme to detonate a nuclear weapon inside Fort Knox, they changed this from the book because Fleming's novel does have Goldfinger trying to rob Fort Knox and steal all the bullion. And of course, this at the time was known as a huge plot hole which Bond then has the big speech in the film, well, it would take about 60 men 12 days to load 100 tons of gold bullion onto however many trucks it is. So they realized that they needed to change it. And the change they make, bringing in a nuclear bomb, bringing in the involvement of, again, the Chinese government and the specter of a China which is still not known in the West, which is still under Chairman Mao, as this very kind of sinister force that's in the background, and that this British person, he's British Goldfinger, of course, even though he's played by uh, the great German actor Gert Frober, has allied himself with this foreign power. Uh, and the involvement of a nuclear weapon expands everything out into something that suddenly feels really colossal. To touch on what we said last week about um, the difference between Harry Saltzman and Albatar Broccoli as producers, and saying that from Russia with Love last week was perhaps the ultimate Harry Saltzman Bond film, an incredibly efficient, super stylish, really thrilling and licentiously thrilling adaptation of Fleming. This is the film really where Albertar Broccoli's vision, not just for this series, but for the modern action film, is really brought to fruition in terms of Bond as this sole hero in a then present-day, generally realistic setting, being up against a larger than life superpower super villain who has all the resources in the world who is seemingly invincible and who has entire armies at his beck and call who bond has to single-handedly go and take out. This is where I think Albert R. Broccoli's vision of what the bond films could be really comes into its own.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think one point I was going to mention as well, just going back to sort of Goldfinger, is why he is sort of quite a terrifying villain as well Is the fact of when they're at the stud farm, um, and Bond is sort of divulging through Operation Grand Slam and the fact that he's saying, you know, the nerve gas will kill up to 64,000 people. The fact that he can just shake that off and say, well, you know, American Motors kill that many every two years.
1: Phil, we've been chastised for stealing your trivia points. I hope this is not one of them, but it probably is. Uh, I saw that the one of the American car manufacturers lobbied to remove that line from the film, and on the American release, it was deleted.
3: I've never heard that before, actually. That is, that is a piece of trivia that's passed me by. And, and a bit I, of car surprising. knowledge
1: that Phil didn't
2: know. <laughs>
1: yes. I
3: know. That's rare, that is, if, if I
2: didn't know that one.
1: And we're only three episodes
2: in. Ooh, burn, Phil. You're going you're gonna to need some good trivia up your sleeve to rescue yourself from that one, I feel.
3: I'm going to have to open my game, I think. I need to do more car research.
2: Let's as, you've, uh, as we've started talking about Goldfinger, let's go straight to the villains. And I would agree with you both. Goldfinger, as played by Gert Frober and as dubbed, by Michael Collins, is an absolutely brilliant, monstrous creation. We've talked a little bit before about the physical aspect of bringing those Bond villains to life, and Frober absolutely does that. He is so bombastic. He rolls along this film almost like a massive block of Jesus as Swallow Ray Winston. He's utterly brilliant as a physical performer, and it's no surprise that he goes on to play a character called Baron Bomburst in another Ian Fleming adaptation in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But the thing that really gets me about his gold finger is the subtlety, or non-subtlety, I guess, of his face acting. Some of the faces he pulls in this film are absolutely brilliant. They made me chuckle so much watching it back. When they're at the golf game and he halves the hole, he sinks the long putt, he just very slowly leans up and there's a smile of absolute smugness on his face, which is an absolute picture. It's so brilliant what he's doing. And other little bits like when he's watching Pussy Galore walk away and just has a little chuckle to himself. And the look of utter smarmy self-satisfaction when he turns off the laser and still shoots bomb with the tranquilizer gun. If you really look at Gert Frober's face in this film, it's absolutely brilliant how much fun he's having.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's, uh, it's kind of an unassuming evil. That's the impression that I got from the film, is that he seems, uh, if you just looked at him without the plot, you'd think that it's a jovial, friendly character, but there is a real deadly side to him particularly when he kills the mobsters. I wanted to bring that one up. Why does he explain the whole plot and then kill them like two minutes later?
2: (laughs) I did note this down myself as being a particularly ridiculous plot hole. Uh, And the only way I can explain it is just that he's converted his entire office uh, via Ken Adam, the production designer, into this amazing model of Operation Grand Slam with huge audiovisual materials. And he's not just doing a PowerPoint pitch to these guys. He's really gone all out with the presentation and having done that and then realized, oh, hang on, I'm, I'm just going to actually draw them here to kill them. Oh, I might as well just give them the presentation. And again, it's a brilliant thing of that sort of boastfulness of the great Bond villains of that fact that they think they're indestructible. They're very clever, but they're too clever for their own good. And the whole sequence is pure plot exposition. And as it turns out, gives Bond everything he needs to stop him from doing it. If Bond doesn't overhear that pitch, which is completely superfluous to Goldfinger's plan, then Goldfinger would absolutely have gotten away with it because there wouldn't have been anything for Bond to warn anyone about. But it is an absolutely brilliant sequence. I just love the rent-a-mob nature of all the crooks as well. It's almost like they hired a live-action version of the anthill mob from the wacky Races to play them all.
0: Hey, what's going on here? Did a merry-go-round?
1: Yeah, actually, those accents did remind me of the Dr. No loud hailer.
3: It was probably the same actor, to be honest, but no, I was going to bring up the room as well, just because I often think, do you imagine if Goldfinger ever had like a drinks party in that room, he was accidentally pressed the wrong button, if it was just like a random group of people who wanted to fire like, us, oh no, wrong button, no, ignore that, ignore that, it's fine, it's fine, it's just my model making set, just ignore that bit, there you go, I'll press button.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Adam, it's all about the ego with the Bond villains, isn't it? And we get the sense a real powerful sense of Goldfinger's ego but also his fragile ego the fact that he needs to cheat at cards for example or is very competitive in the golf game uh, so I think you would get a bit more of a, a rounded well both physically and mental uh, mentally character with, uh, with Goldfinger
2: yeah and there's such a brilliant dynamic interplay between Goldfinger and Bond in those scenes that golf game is just absolutely stonkingly entertaining Everything about it, just the dynamic when the bar of gold is thrown down and suddenly the tension is raised. The fact that Oddjob is compelled to give not one, but two warnings to Bond to stay away. As if it wasn't enough that he's decapitated a statue with a razor-brimmed hat. He then just crushes a golf ball with his bare hands to say, leave it, mate. Get out. You're not messing here. Also, whenever we used to go mini-golfing, I used to try that, the odd job move. I used to just hold the ball in my hand and see if I could crush it one-handed it's absolutely impossible to do i'm convinced that wasn't a real golf ball
1: i think we're going into phil's trivia again here <laughs> we're stealing it It wasn't a real golf ball was it phil
2: it wasn't i
3: can come to this a little bit later but no it was a a prop that was used i believe it was um a mix of sort of card card and I think almost papier-mâché, just to make give it that sort of effect of being softer. But no, I totally agree with you, Adam, about the sort of odd job as a henchman. I've, it's so tense, that bit where obviously Bond's trying to set up Goldfinger with the golf ball. I've never felt more tension than when he's putting the, the golf ball onto the tee and then it obviously comes off. And the fact of, is he good? Obviously, as you're a kid, and even now, it's like, is he going to notice? Obviously, you know he won't, but it's that tension is there from the very beginning and sort of, it, it carries on throughout the film.
1: And can I just, at this point, can I mention my favourite cameo, possibly of the entire Bond series, Hawker the Caddy. An incredible character, and Adam, I know you do a lot of great impressions, and we, we heard, which I think is your best impression, is Hawker the Caddy.
2: I am generally a specialist in incredibly accurate niche impressions, and yeah, Hawker the Caddy and Goldfinger, just other lines he comes out, like, It's your honour, sir! He's a great little character. I think he should have been offered a job at MI6. He should have uh, accompanied Bond in the field. And let's be honest, he wouldn't have been any more out of place in future instalments than Sheriff G.W. Pepper would have been.
1: Indeed. And also, I thought about it a bit, a bit more deeply. He's a caddy who presumably works for the golf club. I think they mentioned that at the beginning. And then we find out Auric Golfinger owns the club. So he's battling against his own boss and gleefully doing it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a very good point. Presumably he was just fired on the spot after this point because he's helped someone cheat, uh, essentially, to beat the, boss's, the the club's owner. So, yeah, I don't think he can keep his job after that. But he looks like he's nearing retirement age. Shall we? Because we've touched on Oddjob. Shall we talk a little bit more about him? Because I guess Oddjob is the first henchman we get who is presented as a really visually bizarre, grotesque character. There's just something in the juxtaposition of him as this huge, stocky Korean sumo wrestler as Harold Sakata was in real life. And the fact that he's in this incredibly quaint traditional downtown Abbey butler outfit with this bowler hat. Uh, and then he's he's built up incredibly well as well. They take Odd Job incredibly seriously. When we first encounter him, when he knocks Bond out in the hotel room in Miami. We only see that strange shadow with the bowler hat on the wall and John Barry's incredible light motif with those chimes. And so you genuinely sense that there's something very frightening about him, which carries all the way through to when he essentially is the one who executes uh, the two female characters who are, who are knocked off in the film. And it carries on all the way through to the final fight, where we talked a bit last week about Red Grant being a physical match for Bond. Oddjob is totally outclassing Bond on the physical stakes. This is one of those examples where it's only because Bond is smarter than the opposition and he's able to somehow find a way to win, that he comes out of that alive because Oddjob is just taking all the hits like a cushion and he's really knocking Bond all over the place. And we just sort of watch it thinking, well, I've no idea how he's going to get out of this.
3: Yeah, I think you're right, Adam. I think he is the first proper henchman. I mean, obviously, we talked about Red Grant in the last episode, the fact that he was kind of built in more realism, whereas, you know, our job is kind of this um, sort of overinflated kind of exaggerated character. The fact you can't even imagine this sort of person in real life, but the fact that, you know, he's, he's there and he's, he's easily able to overpower Bond. Um, and just and going back to with Jill Masterson as well with that death sequence, the fact it's so unusual that sort. Of, I mean, you'd expect someone just like shoot her in the head or something like that, just to assassinate her. The fact that it's sort of gold paint, it's kind of it's a really bizarre way to assassinate someone. But it makes that sort of sequence even more terrifying because it's, you know, it's kind of unthinkable that that's the kind of thought process that they go into.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it creates again a moment of iconic visual power from how strange and how bizarre and how outlandish it is. And those moments are running all through this film. It's a film that's hard to critique in a strange sense. I mean, Phil, you touched on it very eloquently at the start as to why this film is so enjoyable and so brilliant to this day. It's almost not a film. It's a monument. It's like The Wizard of Oz or Casablanca and Star Wars. It's so famous and every element of it has become so iconic. And yeah, certainly adding into all that is the fact that there is a genuinely nasty edge, um, particularly with Jill's death, and especially so with Tilly's death later on, because that is really brutal. And the fact that it's shot in this kind of twilight, very bluey black darkness.
1: Kelly Masterson's driving abilities quite similar to Phil in your angry days. Would you agree with that, Phil? The tailgating.
3: Yeah, she she didn't have much patience. Let's put it that way. So I, I would not say she was a bad driver per se. I think she was sort of a persistent driver in in many respects. She was she was obviously had one goal in mind and and uh, she wanted Bond out of the way.
1: I was just going to say the preciseness of Bond's use of gadgets. The fact that he uses that gadget to take out the the two tires of uh, Tilly's car. But it, you feel like if that was a baddie, then the car would have gone right off the cliff, exploded in midair, and Bond would have made a, an amusing quip. But don't know. No, just it's a really odd sequence and a really strange way that she crashes.
3: Yeah, to, to be honest, the way that's filmed, obviously, as, as we'd, we are aware, it wouldn't happen in real life. Because if, if you did have spikes coming out of your wheel cubs because of the way that wheels are balanced, it would probably rip the rear wheel off your own car. So Bond wouldn't have been able to drive after that point. But yeah, no, I do agree. If, if it had been a villain's car, he would have torn, it would have shredded the tyres. The car would have probably done some sort of spectacular somersault off a cliff.
2: Well, let's not forget on this whole Bond uses all the gadgets at exactly the perfect time. Q did say he was going to keep Bond in the explanation of how the Aston works for a good hour, given his undivided attention. So Q has spent a lot longer than we saw in the film talking Bond through everything. So it's entirely possible Q is saying now, if you do get interrogated by a female driver in the Swiss Alps for whatever reason, this button here will release the spag wheels, which should allow run runner very easily off the road with minimum bloodshed.
1: But whatever you do, don't use it. I put it in there, but don't use it.
2: Phil uh, Q, Q, not Phil Q, has clearly never had children ever in his life, has he? Because as soon as you say to anyone, don't touch this, everyone is waiting for Bond to touch the red button. But it's so brilliant when he finally uses the ejector seat. The way that whole scene is shot and cut together, you know it's coming. You know this is the moment, because they keep cutting to the close-up of Bond's hand on the gear stick. Uh, and then John Barry's music starts to build and he starts to pull away. Another close-up to the gear stick, close-up on Sean Connery. He's flipped it open. We can see the button. The guy next to him is not going to shoot him. John Barry's music gets even louder. Peter Hunt cuts faster. He pushes the button. And then it is the worst special effect of someone flying out of the top of a car, which is accompanied by this terrible Ugh! sound effect. And it's it's a brilliant scene in the way it's built up and it's absolutely incredibly suspenseful and you're really excited on edge. And then the payoff is so funny. And that, again, is what's so brilliant about this. It's just the constant juxtaposition of it's a great action film and it's also absolutely hilarious.
1: Yeah, I love the preamble to that as well. The the fact that Bond has been caught by an, an army of Chinese. I mean, let's not even get into that, that there's a load of Chinese guys in, in the Swiss Alps, even though they are backed by China. Uh, but the, the fact that he's surrounded by these guys and then taking back the hostage is one solitary person in the passenger seat and Bond is allowed to drive himself there.
2: They're probably thinking, yeah, should have put another guy in the back seat, really.
1: I was one final, I know we've talked about my favourite cameo, but there is also another smaller cameo that I really enjoyed, which is the fat woman who's the guard of Oric Goldfinger's complex. I really love that scene because Goldfinger is not a particularly serious, I mean, I guess it is a serious film. There are comedic elements, uh, but I thought that really, maybe in future James Bond films, there's too much comedy too much slapstick Uh, but i thought that was a nice little addition into the serious car chase Uh, and i was even more pleased when i found out that that was alfred hitchcock's favorite part of goldfinger so in my brain i'm now on the level of hitchcock
2: Yeah, she is. I didn't know that that was Hitchcock's favourite moment of the film. It's such a perfect Hitchcock thing to do in that it's such a brilliant joke and payoff. She's built up as this kindly old lady who raises the barium and does a curse. Connery even has that moment where he's just rolling his eyes at her. And then she comes back with this Tommy gun and the look on Connery's face as he sees this. It's one of my favourite Connery moments as Bond. Shall we talk a little bit more about um, the Bond women in this film? We've touched a little bit on Tilly, who I feel is really sadly underused in this, and I'll talk a little bit in relation to her in the book later, but she's kind of the very first example before Pussy Galore then turns up and runs even further with the baton of an actually resourceful, strong-willed, determined Bond woman. This is someone who is on a mission of vengeance, which is the first time we really touch on that in the Bond films. But I just wonder what you guys felt about that. Do you would you like to see more of Tilly? I know that I kind of wanted to.
1: Yeah, I think from the little that we saw of her, she seemed like an interesting character, and with the that revenge plotline, I thought when I was doing my research, I discovered she was actually the actress who played her. Tanya Mallet is the cousin of Helen Mirren, but it's her only acting credit. Apparently, she was only offered about fifty pounds a week for the filming of Goldfinger. So, but yeah, I think uh, I agree with you, Adam. I think uh, I think she was rather underused perhaps in the, in this film.
3: Yeah, I'd agree as well. I, as you say Martin, I think Tanya Mallon started as a um as a model first off and then also she was offered the role in Goldfinger. And I think it was kind of the case that obviously she was that was her main focus was the revenge plot. So it was the fact that it was a sister had been executed by Goldfinger and then, you know, there's these bungled attempts to try and execute him an odd job and i think it is a bit unfair to the character really the fact that she only has kind of a bit part in the whole film particularly when you consider that on a black as pussy galore is this very strong independent character who, who you know doesn't take any
2: messing about from bond or from goldfinger but with pussy we see someone who isn't on bond's side who's not some helpless damsel who gets caught up along the way and isn't a pawn in the villain's plan but an actual key part of it and a component of it who wants to retire to an island with uh, the money that she gets from
1: it. Well, yeah, and he's still using Pussy Glore even after she's betrayed his trust and not used the, what, I can't remember what it was, the Delta 9 gas that was supposed to kill everyone. Uh, just knocks them out for a few minutes instead. Uh, still uses her as the pilot and says that he's going to deal with her later. So I thought, yeah, it's uh, certainly a much more powerful female character.
3: Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I went to mention this earlier actually, but I get the feeling that Goldfinger is not the type of person to sack people it's either you you get hired and then you get executed there is no sort of middle ground you you don't leave his organization without the aspect of a body bag so i imagine the as we mentioned earlier the golf assistant probably didn't retire he's probably buried somewhere uh in a concrete overcoat i'd imagine um again i doubt no
2: no don't say (laughs) poor old hawker hawker makes it out
0: okay
3: all right, I'll, I'll be nice and say that Hawke was one of the lucky ones. He didn't get executed by Goldfinger or Oddjob. He he was he got to retire, and he's he's now, if he wasn't dead already, he's now living in in retirement. I hope
1: he was given a golden goodbye from the human resources department. And we were talking about Spectre's human resources, Phil. But you, you think that Goldfinger also has a, a similar regime?
3: Yeah, I mean the fact that he he just literally offloads people without even a second glance. The fact that he offloads solo and all the other you know mob bosses, you know, without even considering it. I I don't think he's the type of person to take HR matters lightly. Let's say. Oh, I say That he, reminds
1: uh, me. That is one of. My other favourite parts of it, there's so many favourite parts of Goldfinger, it's hard to condense it down into a, a single short podcast. Uh, but that's one of my other favourite parts is when Solo is killed in the car and then they crush the car and get the. Uh, they have to extract the gold. Makes no sense at all. Why didn't Oddjob has already shot, Mr. Solo? Why are they crumpling him up together with the car and then extracting it? And who is Goldfinger? You could say Goldfinger's trying to show off. He doesn't know Bond has escaped from the cell at that point. And and Bond is walking past as the uh, the metal is brought back. So it makes no sense at all, but I love it.
3: It does lead me to quite an interesting trivia point I was going to mention later on. But um, obviously in the sequence where Oddjob shoots Solo, we notice that it's a brand new 1964 Lincoln Continental that he's driving. And when he gets to the yard to get the car crushed, the claw comes down and crushes the same 1964 Lincoln. But as it goes into the crusher, it momentarily changes to a 1963 Lincoln Continental with no engine block. I One think of the more
1: You in- are the only person who could have made that observation, Phil. I think you've noticed that. That is written nowhere online. Nobody else has observed it. <laughs> that's just you.
3: I mean, I could be wrong, but you know, that's that's just from my observations. It uh, it, it changes. You have to be quite eagle-eyed, but it does change to a slightly older model.
2: Whilst we're on incredibly minute observations, did you all spot that Bond is still very much drinking his preferred brand of champagne when he's uh, in the Miami Hotel with Jill Masterson? He's still on Dom Perignon 53, which, of course, he tells Dr. No much earlier on in the series, well, it's much better than the 55, Dr. No.
3: And apparently it has to be drunk at 38 degrees Fahrenheit or lower. Is that correct?
1: Possibly, yeah. Is that, or is that before or after he, he attacks the Beatles? Obviously, Paul McCartney was not bothered because he does the theme tune of Live and Let Die later with wings.
2: I don't know. Maybe no one told Paul McCartney. but Can you imagine Paul McCartney, if he'd never seen Goldfinger, suddenly watches that? But,
0: Why is he having a go at us now, you know? But it is such a, it's such a weird throwaway line
2: and it's one of my favourite because the Bond films, generally speaking, are quite on the pulse of what's happening in pop culture. Um, but that is just one absolutely out there line, which is dated probably worse than a lot of the more sexist, misogynist lines. It's like, hang on, Bond doesn't like the Beatles? What's up with him? Shall we, shall we talk a little bit about uh, the set pieces, the ones that we haven't touched upon, because we haven't talked about the classic scene, the scene when Bond is strapped to the table and the laser is is creeping up him. Do you have any trivia on this? Oh,
3: I do. I was going to bring this up for my trivia segment. This is another right. So the scene where, the, this is two parts of trivia. Basically, obviously it's quite a groundbreaking scene where you've got the laser sequence. Because obviously they, they wouldn't have had the budget to put together a fully working laser and they couldn't have put it onto a gold block either. So what they did, they got a really thick block. I believe it was plywood, but it was a really thick block of wood that Bond is actually strapped to. And underneath was a guy with a blowtorch. And basically, the guy underneath had to get his timing just right. So he had to do it from a reference point of where he thought Bonds, where he thought Sean Connery's backside was, basically, and then stop. So he was listening to the dialogue as it was going through. But he had no idea of where, you know, wood ended and where Bonds rather... uh...
1: Where the wood ended and where the wood began.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So he, he was oh, um, nicely put. He he earned his wages that week, let me put it that way. But um, that's the thing. You can actually, that sweat is real on Sean Connery's face. He isn't acting in that scene. He's literally thinking my uh, crown jewels are going to get a bit toasty in a minute.
1: In general, in popular culture, Sean Connery is kind of mocked for not doing his own stunts, but he's almost died in several of these films that we've looked at.
2: Well, this is still comparatively early in Connery's career when perhaps he still felt that he needed to do these things to put himself on the line. Well, let's not forget
3: this was the days before kind of you know stringent health and safety, so they were they probably had a more sort of relaxed approach to uh, to Sean Connery's own uh, health and well being on the set. Again, I doubt the health and safety process would have been that high on the agenda for the film. I think I think you
1: might need your own little segment for the health and safety.
2: Yeah, maybe we get rid of cars and gadgets and we just do, this is Phil on health and safety and how it's ruined every modern Bond film because in the 60s, you could just take a blowtorch to Sean Connery's gonads and no one really bad an eye about it. I guess sort of towards the end of this segment is a good time to talk about the opening title segment, another great set piece we haven't really talked about. And this is pretty much the first time we see a mini Bond film before the main Bond film. It doesn't have much to do with the main plot, if anything to do with the main plot, but this is the first time we experiment Almost with like, and now the Bond short feature before the Bond main feature. And even in this, there are so many, as Martin was saying earlier, those brilliantly funny, iconic visual jokes. The fact that he's just got a seagull on his head at the start and pops up out of the water. The fact that he takes the whole wetsuit off and there's this pristine white tuxedo and jacket underneath it. And you just look at Connery and how spelt he looks running through that compound. And you're just thinking, there's no way he's got that tuxedo on underneath at that point. But where it does um, tie in, interestingly, I thought, to the main plot is there's a brilliant uh, callback when he fights odd job in Fort Knox to this sequence in that when the guy's in the bath, he's suddenly reaching for, gun, for Bond's revolver and he's about to shoot him. And so suddenly Bond is in this position where he's been beaten, effectively, he's been outmatched, he's about to be killed, but just uses his initiative and his superior mind to find a way by throwing the fan into the bathtub to get out of it.
1: Uh, We're back to bathroom amenities as well. We talked about the shower left on in the previous film. If that dancer doesn't leave the water in the bath, then Bond's dead.
2: Exactly, yeah. that, That could very well have been it. One of many occasions in the series when really Bond should have bit the dust and yet somehow manages to come out of it. Uh, I think we should just finish off also, or I'd like to finish off also this bit by talking a little bit about um, the recurring characters. Because Felix Leiter, I'm on record as saying, I don't think Felix Leiter's particularly good as an ally at all. He sat through pretty much all of Doctor No effectively doing nothing, just commenting on what Bond was doing and not really helping very much. But I love this Felix Leiter, A, because he actually does prove himself useful and comes in with the army at the end and saves the day. But also the fact that this guy does not seem like a CIA agent in the slightest with the little hat on. He looks like he could have been one of the gangsters in the Operation Grand Slam meeting. He spends a lot of time just sat in a KFC and then he has to run out when Bond's on the move because he's, you know, halfway through a bargain bucket, presumably.
1: It's almost like they went too far the other way in Dr. No we had Jack Lord, who possibly looks cooler than Sean Connery. And they thought, oh, no, we can't have that. Let's get an uglier, older guy to play Felix Leiter. But yeah, I do agree with you, Adam. It's, uh, he does look a bit ridiculous. And uh, I'd argue he's almost as useless as Jack Lord's Leiter as well. Because the only thing he has to do in the film is lay on the, uh, the accommodation or the, uh, the food and drink on the plane before Bond sees the president, and he can't even do that because Goldfinger takes over the plane without Leiter
2: realizing. Felix Leiter, yeah, most rubbish CIA agent ever.
0: Why don't you acquaint yourself the manual? Should be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q.
1: And our next segment is a look at the books so adam what were the uh, the key similarities and
2: differences with goldfinger the book and movie well once again like dr and from Russia with love from a general character and structural point of view this hues pretty closely actually to goldfinger the novel obviously everything has been gigantified uh, and made much bigger and funnier in the film because of that different tone that they were going for in this one that we've talked about In the book, Goldfinger is actually the accountant for Smirsch, Fleming's uh, version of the KGB, who we talked a little bit about last week. And so his gold smuggling operations is secretly funding the Russian intelligence service. Uh, We've talked before a little about the fact that in the book, the plan is to rob Fort Knox as opposed to radiate the gold supply. Obviously a massive plot hole. You wouldn't have any time to rob anywhere near that amount of gold bullion from Fort Knox. And so that was very wisely uh, changed. One of the key differences is Pussy Galore. She's actually one of the gangsters who is brought in for Operation Grand Slam. In the novel, she's not the head of a flying circus. She's the leader of a gang of Harlem cat burglars, an all-female criminal gang. Uh, and is more obviously lesbian, as is Tilly Masterson, who in the novel actually survives all the way more or less through the film and is brought to Kentucky and is a secretary for Operation Grand Slam in the same way that Bond is. And because Pussy Galore is also a lesbian in the novel, Tilly feels that she, she's the one actually in the book who can seduce Pussy and, and allow herself to survive and be rescued by her. Sadly, it does still end with Odd Job killing her in the end. Uh, The other key difference is the end sequence. Uh, The fight on the plane, Oddjob survives to this point, uh, and it's Oddjob who is sucked out of the plane window, whereas Goldfinger is just strangled by Bond in all of the melee. Uh, And Pussy doesn't really convert to the good side. In the novel, uh, Bond's plan to warn Felix Leiter with a message actually works. He writes the message in the steam on the bathroom mirror in Goldfinger's private jet, which Felix finds in time and then stops the raid with the might of the uh, the U.S. Army. So much more useful in the books Felix Leiter than in the uh, film. The only other thing to say is just on Ian Fleming and the names that he gives his characters, he pulled a lot of them from people he knew in real life. And one of the more famous ones of this is that the name of Ernst Stavro Blofeld, came from uh, someone surnamed Blofeld who Fleming was at Eton with, who was the father of the uh, much-loved TMS former commentator Henry Blofeld. But in this case, Goldfinger was an actual guy. He was an architect called Erno Goldfinger, who for a while was suing Fleming for the use of his name as this pompous, bombastic, gold-crazed villain. Uh, Fortunately, that lawsuit was settled and the book did go ahead. I think a lot of flattery of Mr. Goldfinger had to happen for that case, but an interesting little side note there.
0: You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. <laughs> Ever heard of evil can evil?
1: Neither have I actually. So we'll move on now to the cars and gadgets. Phil, I notice you've uh, expanded your segment here into gadgets as well. But uh, what did uh, what have you got for
3: us? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. I think obviously there's only really one starting point: Bond's glorious Aston Martin DB5. Um, which kind of the very first time ever appeared in a film it's gone on to become the most popular in the franchise having appeared in six films in total Um, and it is due to make an appearance in the forthcoming release of No Time to Die. Now I was going to mention this for part of my trivia but when the production team were looking at the, the kind of the car that Bond would have Aston Martin were actually quite reluctant to offer them the DB5 principally because they weren't sure obviously how it would look in the film and they weren't sure they wanted to put their name to a car that was obviously designed to you know sort of fight off villains and things such as that so the production team actually had to buy their own aston martins to put into the film which is obviously quite a great expense for the budget and in future once you saw the success of the final product and you know the fact that it grows so much money worldwide the bomb production team never had to buy a car again. They were always supplied with them for free. So that that was quite a huge impact. The fact that this car had, and again, I think when you look back at the film and the era that it was in, as Adams mentioned before, this was the height of the swinging sixties. You know, cool Britannia was at its absolute peak, and it was so important. The fact that the the film kind of revolved around the car chases and the action sequences, it was so important that they got that the the choice of car right, and that they knew what they wanted to do with it. But the thing is, the part that got me into the Bond franchise in terms of Goldfinger with the Aston Martin was the gadgets. You know, everybody remembers the ejector seat and all the different features that were part of it. But going back, perhaps the most innovative um, device that Bond uses within the Aston Martin DB5 is his satnav tracker system. Now, it's actually been worked out that for that system to work in 1964, you'd have probably needed about 15 to 20 satellites orbiting around the world to be able to get that system to work. At best, there were probably only one or two satellites in orbit at that time. So that for that system to work, it would have needed some sort of bizarre system where there were the most powerful satellites on Earth to be able to get just one Aston Martin to be able to track Goldfinger's movements.
1: In terms of touching the moon, Goldfinger's already won. He can put a spot on the moon. <laughs> Forgot that, Phil.
3: He can't. I did. I forgot that the laser is so powerful he can put a spot on the moon, so that is a good point. Maybe Goldfinger is the man with the satellites.
2: What does that even mean, it can project a spot on the moon? Does that just mean I can point it at the moon? Because I can do that with just a torch I've got in the kitchen. I can point that at the moon and be like, yeah, there you go, there's a spot on the moon.
1: If it makes a physical dent, then how would they even measure that in 1964? <laughs> they didn't they hadn't gone there. I like to imagine him like just doing a little smiley face, two eyes and those. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> in the mouth.
3: I mean, that would have been more entertaining, I think, if it would just done like a little blob on each bit. And then, um, interestingly, Aston Martin a few years ago released their heritage range where, for a lot of money, if you had an Aston Martin DB5 or a DBS from On Majesty's Secret Service or a V8 Vantage as seen in the Living Daylights, they would kit it out for you with the same sort of. Kit that had that bond had in each car so for example with the db5 you could have had it with its own bulletproof screen revolving number plates unfortunately they couldn't really get the oil slick to work so it'd spray water out the back and obviously the machine guns weren't operational they were just sort of light sequences that could fire but if you had probably several millions in the bank you could literally go to aston martin and say i want my own db5 like the one in goldfinger and they would have made it for you
1: okay thanks a lot phil for that very comprehensive look uh, the most iconic James Bond car, the Aston Martin DB5. So our next segment is uh, is my segment, which is called "That's Not Okay Anymore." The so the Bond film goldfinger not great in terms of feminism but uh, let's run through some of the uh, the more dodgy elements of this film Uh, so firstly i picked out the uh, the first scene before the uh, the titles the credit sequence Uh, we have the belly dancer at the start who is used as a human shield for sean connery's bond now this one i think we can excuse him because she doesn't tell him about the man who's about to clobber him to death Uh, he has to rely on looking at the reflection in her eye I'm not sure about the physics of that scene either I I've never looked at someone's eye and seen a reflection of someone behind me but I think we can we can forgive that but it, it's slightly dodgy scene in which uh, Connery is using a woman as a, as a human shield. Later instances are perhaps a bit more difficult to excuse though. We get uh, Dink, the girl, relaxing with James by the Miami hotel pool. She gets the uh, the Connery bum slap, as told to basically bugger off because there needs to be some man talk with Felix. And obviously the, uh, the main female character of Pussy Galore, we said that she is uh, a strong, independent woman, but slightly undermined by her name. Although we can that's Ian Fleming's fault, I suppose, writing it in the books. Of course, we do get Honey Rider in Doctor No, which has its own origins in slang, uh, but we're kind of reaching a new level of sexual innuendo. I, I'm not sure if we can call it innuendo. It's uh, it's very clear what uh, the meaning of uh, Pussycaller is.
2: It's not innuendo even, is it? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll blame Fleming for that. The most ridiculous name possibly of any character ever. I mean... You look at the names that Austin Powers later comes up with as a kind of joke, and none of them are actually as funny as the original. So yeah, we've talked about the uh, the monikers that are used, but
1: perhaps the most uncomfortable part of the film is the uh, the love scene with Pussy Galore in the haystack. Uh, Now I think it's good that they did use. Apparently they put into Anna Blackman's contract that there would be some judo fighting which she'd been doing previously in The Avengers. Uh, so I think that's good and we see that's part of her powerful nature. But then the love scene, the kissing afterwards, it's, I don't know what the phrase is, perhaps we could say it's a bit, it's a bit rapey. I
2: think we could definitely say it's a bit rapey and it, it is one of the great ironies of Goldfinger, isn't it? That we, we talked about just how iconic and funny and brilliant many sequences in it are. It does also contain this sequence, the kind of rapey Bond sequence, which is pretty much the first scene that everyone uses against the Bond franchise uh, to to critique its, it's, I guess, the sort of sense of sexism, certainly, that pervades some of its earlier uh, episodes. And yeah, it's a scene that is very difficult to watch now and incredibly difficult to excuse. I guess the only thing you could say to tie it into the others is that usually Bond succeeding in the mission And usually Bond being able to save his own life depends on him being able to seduce the women who are tangentially caught up in these schemes. Uh, Mr. Solo, with his message to Felix Leiter, has been crushed, and so Bond assumes the message never got there. And he knows now that unless he is in some way able to convince Pussy Galore to betray Goldfinger, he knows that Goldfinger and Operation Grand Slam is going to succeed. And more than that, 60,000 people are going to be killed. At the same time, yeah, it is now a deeply uncomfortable scene to watch. And from the top of my head, I don't think there's anything quite as bad as it later on in the series. So, yeah, at least they seem to have sort of learned the lesson of it.
3: Yeah, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think it's one of those, as you say, it's one of those sequences that's just really difficult to watch. And it really hasn't aged well at all. The trouble is, I can't forgive Goldfinger for that sequence, but I can sort of, you sort of tolerate that sequence because the rest of the film is so good. And that's probably its only blemish in truth.
1: Okay, and our next segment is the trivia segment. So it's the segment that me and Adam like to steal from Phil before he actually gets to it. So have you got anything left, Phil, this week?
3: To be honest, I've actually mentioned most of my points already in the episode, so it'll probably be quite a brief section this week because you've already heard quite a lot of trivia about the film. Um, Another interesting point I just wanted to mention quickly about Desmond Llewellyn playing Q. When he first went to audition for the role, Terence Young wanted to play him as a Welshman, and obviously Desmond Llewellyn, being from Newport originally, was quite naturally able to put on the Welsh accent. But he said, you know, this is ridiculous. You can't have Q as a Welshman. Because, we, all right now, boy, oh, James Bond, 007. So you can't, you couldn't really have that working as Q's character. So fortunately, Desmond Llewellyn won that argument. And then from that point onwards, he was kind of this upper, he played as the upper class, you know, posh professor type role.
1: Apologies to any of our Welsh listeners there.
3: Yeah I I meant no offense with that terrible accent. Um another interesting point Burt Kwok who plays the Chinese general um and supplies the nuclear device for Goldfinger also appears as a brief cameo in You Only Live Twice as well so he's another henchman who appears in that as well
0: no no no, st- no stop getting bond wrong stop getting bond wrong okay
1: and our final part of the show we have the quiz so phil it's over to you for this week's quiz
3: as i think this has become a regular feature for us each week and i thought i'd keep in um, in keeping with your um sort of quick fire sudden death round last week but um, but martin if we start with gadgets that have been used in dr no from russia with love and goldfinger so far
1: I'll go with the ejector seat in the Aston Martin.
2: Correct, Adam. I'll go with the Geiger counter in Dr. No.
1: Smoke screen in the Aston Martin.
2: Correct, Adam. Are you just going to do all the Aston Martin ones? I'll <laughs> yep. Go for uh, Red Grant's Garrett watch. Correct, Martin.
1: I'll go with the oil slick in the Aston Martin. Is that the same as the smoke
3: screen? No, it's different. It's you are looking. They are different.
2: Oil and smoke are different, Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll go for the boot heel homing device in Goldfinger.
3: Very good. Yes, correct. Yeah, Martin.
1: Does it count as a different one? That yeah, it is a different one, isn't it? The big homing device that he puts in Goldfinger's car.
3: Go on. We'll let you off with that one. Yeah. Go on. I'll go for the poison
2: spiked shoes in From Russia with Love. Yep. Correct, Martin.
1: Have we done the attaché case in From Russia with Love? Do you want each individual <laughs> element of it?
2: No. <laughs> okay, well, but in case. well, you got away with the car. I don't think we're going to have that. Uh, over 50 gold sovereigns. I'm going to go for the bulletproof coat in Goldfinger that we very briefly see before the Aston. Well remembered. Martin, you're next.
1: The bulletproof shield that comes
3: out of the Aston Martin? Yes, correct. Which yeah.
1: technically is not needed, because Q says that the, the windows are bulletproof.
3: But it helps as well. It helps to have double defences. Yeah,
1: and Braces.
2: <laughs> I will go then for the uh, front and rear machine guns in the Aston Martin. Correct, yep.
1: It does the laser count in Goldfinger. It's a gadget, isn't it? Or are we, yeah, only doing, on, are we only doing Bond ones, though?
3: No, you can have villain ones as well, so yeah, the laser does count. Okay. Oh, okay, fair enough. Well, I'll go for Odd Jobs hat. Martin, back to you.
1: I haven't got anything else, Bill.
3: All right, okay. So you could, just to let you know, there are a couple that you could have had. So technically, I would have accepted the Dragon Tank from Dr. No. I'd have also accepted the revolving number plates on Bond's Aston and the tape recorder device that's hidden in the camera in From Russia With Love. That was another device that was obviously quite a nifty gadget. Or the Elcometer, which Bond uses to find the bugs in the hotel room as well so there were a couple of ones that you could have had as well but um adam as a worthy winner you get to pick uh this week's final song to play us out so what would you like to hear this week
2: well we seem to have gone the whole podcast without mentioning shirley Bassey, uh the ultimate singer of Bond themes but actually the tune i'm going to pick is the version of the title song to goldfinger as sung by anthony newley who co-wrote the lyrics to the song
1: Okay, very good. Uh, Excellent quiz there, Phil. The gadgets that I couldn't remember. Uh, So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. That was episode number three, Goldfinger. Roger Moore's cubbyhole will be back for Thunderball. Just a quick reminder, feel free to uh, give us a like on Facebook, all of the uh, other social media, Instagram, Twitter. We'll see you next time. It's a goodbye from me, Martin.
2: It's goodbye from me, Adam. And it's goodbye from me, Phil. Goldfinger.
0: He's the man, the man with the
3: Midas
0: touch A spider's
3: touch Such a
0: cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin But don't go in words he will pour in your ear. But his lies can't disguise what you fear. For a golden girl knows when he's kissed her. It's the kiss of death
2: from Mr. Goldfinger.
1: Pretty girl